0: I read your book. Here we go. Would you like me to
1: quote you? Ironically, uh, the thing that people are the most hungry for, meaning, is the one thing that science hasn't been able to give them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. It's like you're saying that science killed God. What if? What if science simply revealed that he never existed in the first place?
0: i think we're gonna need to get some air what and a few more of these hi and welcome to friends at dusk a christopher nolan filmography
1: podcast i'm your co-host marshall doig and i'm your other co-host jake harris and tonight we are talking all about the influences on Interstellar.
0: Got some Man of Science, Man of Faith talk coming here. Very
1: excited. One of my one of my favorite movies that we're going to talk about tonight.
0: Yeah, but before we share that secret, if uh, the uh, title <laughs> of the episode doesn't actually give it away. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think we've got some
1: Christopher Nolan news, Jake. We finally do. We've got two big pieces of news, and we can... You want me to take both of them, or do you want to take one of them?
0: Oh, I'll take the first one, and you can fill in if I miss anything important. All right, sounds good. But the the big, exciting news in in Christopher Nolan uh, over the past couple weeks is uh, CinemaCon happened, and Christopher Nolan presented some new footage from Oppenheimer, and from everything that I saw in terms of reaction... There's uh, more hype building. The hype machine is in full swing, I think we can say. And Christopher Nolan had some pretty uh, interesting quotes and comments about Robert Oppenheimer, uh, including a very bold statement of, quote, Like it or not, he is the most important person who ever lived. He made the world we live in for better or worse. His story has to be seen, to be believed. So, you know, there's been a lot of people who have lived to say Oppenheimer is the most important person. I mean, considering the nuclear age, I think (laughs) there's an argument to be had there, but there's also a lot, a lot of other people you could talk about, but still, um, I think we've got, I think we've got some good subject matter coming our way.
1: Yeah, very much a, uh, like we've said, aggressively centrist, (laughs) uh, didn't say, you know, whether it's good or bad, but just said whether you like it or not, like, the world we live in is vastly different because this man existed. So yeah, I'm very excited to see uh, the the sheer gravity uh, of how he paints that picture with this movie. Yeah. Just.
0: Yeah. And then another part of that presentation was uh, Nolan said he could neither confirm nor deny that a full length trailer for Oppenheimer would be attached to guardians of the galaxy three, which opens by the time this publishes. Uh, it will have been released already, so we'll by the next time we record, we're going to know whether there's a new trailer or not, so we'll see uh, what comes out.
1: My money is betting on, yeah, probably. I'm going to say yeah as well. Yeah. <laughs> that one's got, uh, a lot of the like box office pundits are, are predicting Guardians is going to do really, really well this summer, just because it's the end of that trilogy, but
0: we'll see. I did see a trailer for it ahead of my viewing of Interstellar in IMAX, which I'll talk about in a little bit. Ooh, and nice. having my, my well documented I've only seen, I think, two Marvel movies. Having seen the trailer for <laughs> that, I gotta say, it's a well done trailer. Looks pretty exciting, considering the you know, the the post end game world we live in. So <laughs> Yeah, interesting.
1: I like the uh, the first two ones. Those are some of my favorite ones out of the whole MCU. So I'm excited to see that one. I don't think I'm going to get to see it this weekend, but I will eventually. I'm not I'm less concerned with catching up on those opening weekend now than I once was. So, right, right. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. The other big piece of news, also related to Oppenheimer, today, actually, as we're recording, this is uh, Wednesday, May 3rd, uh, the Associated Press uh, did a little interview with Killian Murphy just ahead of the movie's release. Uh, This is uh, by Lindsay Barr. And Murphy doesn't really give a whole lot away in terms of what's going to happen in the movie or what he did to prepare for the role or anything like that, like what it was like on set. He's very much uh, like Christopher Nolan is going to, leave us in the dark and let us experience it first and then we can talk about it. But there was a lot of fun, uh just details about how he got the role in the first place. Uh, the profile talks about how he has always just told Nolan, like, Hey, if you've got a role and for a movie, I don't care what it is, whatever bit part, let me know and I'll play it. And he said that he got a phone call from him one day randomly. And the quote says he's, Murphy talking about Nolan. He says he's so understated and self-deprecating, and in his very English manner, just called me up and said, "Listen, I've written the script. It's about Oppenheimer. I'd like you to be my Oppenheimer." And then he said it was a great day getting that call.
0: I can um, imagine. Yeah. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he he said that you know always he wanted to to be a part of his movies, but deep down secretly, I was desperate to play a lead for him. That's what he said. And so it's uh, the profile kind of goes. little bit into their working relationship apparently he read the script for oppenheimer at a hotel room in dublin in september 2020 right away read it all in one sitting and the big quote that they actually couldn't really print the whole word for in associated press was he said, "We have this long-standing understanding and trust, and shorthand and respect." Murphy said, "It felt like the right time to take on a bigger r- responsibility, and it just so happened that it was a fucking huge one." <laughs> so they gotta, they had to bleep him a little bit, but uh, it's fun seeing. Him. We don't really get a lot of interviews from Killian Murphy and a lot of talk about anything. He's very much like Christopher Nolan and that he doesn't really talk a whole lot about his work and all about his movies, but. Uh, that's a fun read if you want to go check that out that's on the associated press website from one of their head film writers so not a lot of new information about the movie but a lot of fun color around it and uh nolan has promised that you know all imax the other article i read said it's just a little bit of black and white he said don't worry <laughs> but uh the photo that they used for the killian murphy profile is that court it looks like the court testimony scene where it's in black and white that's been popping up in the trailers and promotional materials all the time so
0: yeah just very exciting you
1: know for yes
0: yes about two and a half months away and it's all revving up I'm
1: getting more and more excited yeah I think we're gonna get more more news as the date approaches uh, so we'll keep you guys up to date on everything like that yeah so on that note we can talk about
0: I guess, relatively briefly what we've been watching or consuming. And for me, it kind of ties into Oppenheimer a little bit, given that I'm continuing to read American Prometheus, as we do, and was kind of just thinking about the era of McCarthyism and political paranoia and thought to myself, you know what, I haven't watched Good Night and Good Luck in a while. And so I did. And it is, yeah, it's just, it's so good. It's just as good as I remember it being since the last time I watched it the photography in that, the black and white, is so amazing and just, that really captures a lot of it's one of those movies you watch and you're like, damn why is everything still so relevant today? This is It's great and it also really sucks so, uh, I know some people kind of use that as a stick to beat the movie with, like, oh, it's too obvious blah blah blah, but it was made in the middle of the George W. Bush years, obviously you can imagine what I had to say about that Uh, but now it's kind of again, really surfacing with some of the relevance in terms of how the media is uh, like mass media and corporate media is controlled and operates where it's really ultimately all about the money at the heart of it, of course. So if you get somebody who is trying to report in an ethical fair manner, I'm not talking about the both sides of every story, but you know, actually speaking truth to power and holding officials to account, that kind of ethical way of reporting. You know, you look at what we got uh, for some of that today and you just shake your head. You're like, man, what? Need more Murrow's. Not not so many. uh, Well, William Paley represents definitely an institution since he runs CBS in that movie. But, you know. So, uh, but the the Oppenheimer thing, uh, there is just a Brief, Ever so brief passing mention of Oppenheimer because of the time period that the movie covers is a late 1953 to early 1954 when Edward R. Moreau covered uh, Joseph McCarthy's yeah, yeah, yeah. height of his powers. And also during that time, Oppenheimer was going through his Atomic Energy Commission hearings. So just, you know, a movie made in 2005 just uh, took a little tidbit of some of the news that was happening at the time and we can manufacture it to tie into what we're talking about here. So that's pretty cool.
1: Always. Yeah. It's been uh I think I watched that in 2005, maybe 2006 when it came out. Um and I haven't revisited it since. Uh it was also one of the big influences on me being like maybe I want to do journalism as a career. And now you Same. mentioning <laughs> all that makes me think like yeah, my the newspaper I work for is owned by a company that is owned by a hedge fund and uh That's great. Media is consolidating and soon there's going to be just a couple companies running everything. And then who knows, maybe they'll be doing a bunch of AI stuff. Um, I've had several meetings today, actually, about whether or not that was going to happen for some stuff. So who knows? It's a wild, wild world out there.
0: Sounds like that's what will make the most money
1: for the the people in charge. So that's probably what's going to happen. Pivot to video, pivot to AI all that fun stuff. Yes. I don't, it's, I don't want to talk too much more about that. No. that <laughs> <me>. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I saw your letterbox review on that one and I was like, yeah, that pretty much sums it up like about <laughs> thoughts about leaving journalism and the idealism of it all and everything. Um, George Clooney should direct more movies. I think is my takeaway from that movie though. Yeah. He did a great job. Great job. Yeah. For me, I have uh, another documentary, like last week, actually by the same director, uh, his name's Sam Jones, uh, and this one is about Tony Hawk, so he's done a lot of, uh, he has a very wide swath of subjects that he likes to make movies about. I actually found out he did a documentary about Wilco a while ago, but anyway, uh, this one is called Tony Hawk, Until the Wheels Fall Off, and... That one is kind of a retrospective, just documentary about Hawk's entire life. Uh, and so if you're like a big super fan of his, like I was as a kid, there's not a lot new about his career that's told here, but there is really a lot, uh, just like the Jason Isbell documentary, a lot about the interpersonal relationships and his family and a lot of stuff that you might not have known about that and just the the way that his sheer like pursuit of excellence and everything he did for skateboarding really impacted his relationship with his siblings and his parents and his wife and his kids and everything and um, really good. And then the highlight actually is uh, there's an interview tidbit where uh, Rodney Mullen is talking about just the pressure of competing and the pressure of, you know, when you're the best at something and you're out there still trying to prove that you're the best, especially in a sport like skateboarding or something like swimming or bicycling or whatever, where it's kind of a team sport, but you're individually competing he has this like really like poetic streak where he talks about the beauty of just competing against your own self and not having to prove anything, but just knowing that you did your best. And I was not expecting that from a documentary about Tony Hawk. Um, but it's a really cool, uh, just to look at how he influenced the whole sport and subculture, especially growing up in the nineties. Um, and it's bookended by a really nice, uh uh, sequence of events where he finally lands a 900 again on his homemade ramp and it's just really really cool uh, if you're especially if you're a skateboarding fan but even if you aren't it's a good good look at how that culture kind of dominated everything but i also think i cut you off because you have another cool thing to talk about that i just saw you pop up in the notes so tell us more about the other cool thing that you saw this week
0: yeah i mean the tony Hawk, of course tony Hawk pro skater kind of the defining video game i think for for at least me, with a couple of my friends, I'd go over. That's what we play. But uh, oh, I still play it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the thing I added just in time in the notes, of course, is I went to see Interstellar in IMAX uh, about a week and a half ago, and it was. I I just don't even know where to start with with the words. It was just unbelievably amazing. Uh, I'm also trying to. I'll probably withhold some of my fuller descriptions and words on it for the next episode when we're actually talking about the movie but it was just absolutely immense and incredible and you know the cliche the way it was meant to be seen extremely moving and yes I say it again it's very moving if I ever hear anyone ever again say Nolan can't do emotion I'm going to scream the picture and sound just uh, my god I just what it, especially the launch scene which I was very much looking forward to Ooh yeah and then when matt damon as dr Man is trying to take control of the endurance and he blows the airlock out i knew knew it was coming i just couldn't remember at what point his dialogue got cut off so i was trying to remember this and when it suddenly happened and the imax leader when the sound cuts in it made me jump so much <laughs> i was like oh there it is um then some i'll have some more things to say about some of that but you know, kind of as a teaser for talking about that next time. But it was definitely worth every penny that, you know, like the bargain to just get in and see that is incredible. So very, very thankful that I was able to get to go see that. And Haley was able to come with me, too. We got the kids down to bed and everything worked out and and we were able to go together. So it was a wonderful time. I guess the other thing I'll say is it was really cool to just, once the movie ended and just uh, waiting in the lobby uh, before we left and hearing people chatter and talk about it, a couple asked me to take their photo by the poster. And then we ended up in the elevator down to the parking garage with them on the way out. And, you know, I couldn't resist uh, generating a little extra amount of content for the podcast. So I was like, <laughs> you, you all seen it uh, like this before? And they're like, this is our first time seeing it ever. So I was just blown oh, away. My God. I was so nice, so happy for them. Uh, and they Jealous. really. Yeah. <laughs> and they really enjoyed it, obviously. So so that was cool.
1: That was cool. That's awesome. I'm so jealous. Next time I'm hoping that they'll do like more of a retrospective of all of his movies that he shot on IMAX at some point. So I'll I'll get to it at some point. But yeah, I mean, yeah, good. I can't
0: stuff. recommend it enough. Definitely if if you ever get the chance and the opportunity and have the means, definitely do it without hesitation.
1: But today, what we are going to be talking about, uh, we're going to be talking about two things, uh, and one of them is not specifically mentioned in the Nolan Variations book that we've been using as the framework for all of these discussions, but we will get to why we chose that here in a minute. Not but once. We are going to be, not once. No. Sadly. Sadly. I could not believe. Same. Uh, once we looked at the similarities. Um, but we're going to be talking uh, about the Library of Babel, a short story from our good friend Jorge Luis Borjas. And then we are going to be discussing the 1997 movie Contact, which also, like Interstellar stars Matthew McConaughey, is also about space and also is about uh, maybe there's extra life somewhere. Maybe there's other planets that we could live on. Who knows? And we yeah we do what we want here on this podcast at friends at dusk uh going off the rails and off script we're doing it we figured out that that was uh there are too many similarities to ignore really especially uh, on this rewatch within the context of this podcast so we'll get more into that here in a little bit but we can talk about the short story first and then get into the movie but also as always blanket spoiler alert reminder this movie did come out in 1997, but I don't really know a lot of people uh, right now that have seen it. So please do go ahead and watch that if you want to. Uh, I, I think you should. It's a great movie. One of my favorite movies. So go do that and then come right back and we will get to talking about Contact and the Library of Babel. Yeah, but starting off with the library of,
0: I say Babel, I don't know, is it Babel, Babel? I'm going to say Babel because that's how I've been saying I, in my head. We, I,
1: I grew up saying Tower of Babel from the Bible, and then I guess maybe it's actually Babel. Who knows? I don't know. We'll we'll say Babel. We'll, we'll synergize. And do oh, that. okay. Well, thank you. I was going to say, you can do what you
0: want. I'm just <laughs> going to just lay that out. But anyway, the Library of Babel uh, was first published. Uh, it's another short story, 1941 by Jorge Luis Borges. And essentially, it is a story told from the point of view of one man who lives in this library which takes on the form and appearance of just the entire universe Uh, a library built out into infinity essentially no one knows where it ends or or anything and it's divided into all these clusters of hexagonal bookshelves that men just traverse constantly reading these books that are a set um, format and length and it's described as having like all that is given to know and and tell all the and like collected intelligence of everything and so it's books that like make sense and have normal structure and words uh, in all languages and some just complete nonsense with like some books being just the same letter over and over for example and this narrator describes what life is like in this giant library and how people handle living there including Theories about like the nature and existence of and purpose of what this library should be. So kind of with the library being its own universe and questions of what is the purpose here, man, that sounds an awful lot like space type things. So that's uh, <laughs> essentially what the story is about. And I'm going to guess that for both of us, it was our first time reading it. Is that, is that accurate, Jake?
1: Yeah. And I think by now we've kind of gone through, I think it, this point probably three fourths of the way through the entire Fictionas, uh catalog here. Definitely, um, but yeah, that's the the first time I had read it. Uh, I went back and read it twice actually after I did it the first time because it's pretty short and we've talked about it before. But just the the quality and the uh, dreamlike aspects of these stories are are pretty good. So it all it just kind of especially this one just kind of drops you right in with this guy explaining what this library is and how it affects people. And the first thing, the funny enough, the first thing that I thought of was um, I've got like, I have more than a thousand movies in my house. I have close to when Taylor and I combine libraries, we have close to a thousand books in here. And so I just thought of most of all of those are the movies are alphabetized and sectioned off into criterion DVD series franchises all that stuff and then the books are alphabetized and put into genre uh, so there's a little bit some sort of categorization going on and it took so long to get all of those in an order and to categorize it and to find a system for it And so I just, I reading this, that was the first thing that I thought of, but then the vastness of everything of people just searching for that one thing or searching for something, just the, the sheer futility of trying to catalog everything and trying to know everything and learn everything about the universe will drive you mad is basically what I got from this. Um, Yeah, cause there's never going to be any way of knowing anything. It's like that, um, you know, that meme where it's the two people sitting on the bus and one person's looking out the window and it's a bright, sunny, sky and then the other one is looking out and the bus is driving on a mountain so all they see is rocks and the rock side looks really sad and the other side looks really happy and so you can <laughs> apply the same thing but you get the same res- uh, two different results so it's like one of them said um I saw it shared from like a stoicism meme page but it said I can't control everything and one person is happy that they can't control anything and the other person is sad <laughs> I saw another one that was like there's so much to learn and one person is sad that they're never going to know anything or everything. And the other person is really happy that there's just so much knowledge and cool things to learn in the world. Uh, Right. Yeah. This one definitely takes on the sadness part, I think. And even with the, you know, the, the descriptions of men fighting each other in hallways and librarians falling off of the edges and the stacks in the universe and stuff like that. Just, we will fight each other and, just go crazy with everyone being absolutely certain that they're right about something when there's infinite possibilities and we're always like, how can you know what's right, what's wrong if the library or the universe is that big basically.
0: Right. Yeah. And I like how you, you put that, like, how do we know things? And so just uh, from a thematic standpoint for both things we're talking about tonight is, they both kind of have a, between these two and interstellar, there's kind of a transitive property of storytelling DNA sharing. Like this story shares a whole lot of thematic DNA of contact in Mm -hmm. terms of a search Mm -hmm. for meaning and knowledge and purpose and like science and faith uh, and reason, which contact itself then shares a lot of thematic DNA with interstellar with like the parental generational emotion and trauma and science and truth and fighting for humanity's survival and, Examining those survival instincts, time and gravity, relativity, those kind of things. So it was just an interesting thing I thought of uh, how we're looking at these things. So yeah, I also read this story twice as it turned out to get the first read in and then yeah. to actually start taking notes on once I'd had some time to to digest it a little bit. And also with what you said with, yeah, they, these librarians as they're kind of called... They live in a place with all the the knowledge, basically, but they don't really know anything is what the story kind of uh, expounds on time and again. And there's kind of just this inherent paradox of the whole thing. Uh, Yeah, holding all the knowledge and no knowledge. uh, The narrator says like there's every single variation of every single book, every point and every counterpoint, every validation and invalidation. Um, So you can get like every combination of every possible letter and symbol. It's like a 25 character alphabet. So that means like each book is 410 pages long and 40 lines per page and 80 characters per line is what the story says. So that I did the math. uh, It's 1.3 million characters per book. So (laughs) that means like that combination of characters, like 1.3 times whatever. Someone actually did the math on that, you know, that it can lead like with that many possible combinations of things. You can get something perfectly intelligible or or not, Um, which is sort of like what life is really, you know a lot of moments you can have perfect clarity and then a lot of other moments you yeah. don't know what's going on. So yeah, just the, the whole idea of the library kind of standing in for the universe. There's like this uncertainty about how big the library is within the story. Uh, it's uh, the narrator yeah. says it's indefinite, perhaps infinite, and no one can agree on whether there is a defined limit to it or if it just goes on forever just like the universe is it con- should be constantly expanding. But is there a limit to where we can go in it? And especially like with maybe a, a direct link to interstellar, which is probably what uh, Tom Schoen was getting at when he mentioned the story. It's incredibly easy to see the oh, influence yeah.
1: on on the Tesseract and in interstellar mm-hmm, for the for ending. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Yeah, like that was yeah, that was all I was thinking about was him searching in the stacks for something or anything to connect him to back to home. Right. Yeah. Tom Schoen was not
0: kidding about <laughs> about the, <laughs> the endless hall of parental regret that the Tesseract is an airstellar and in. that's what mm-hmm. the library is in this story for for all of
1: humankind. Yeah. I also like the um your point about all the knowledge, but knowing nothing, Uh, Tom Schoen kind of gets at that too, where he mentions that this is almost like a precursor to the internet where yet we have more computing power in a phone that we keep in our pocket right now than the technology that we use to send people to the moon. And yet we still have people who believe conspiracy theories. We still have people that will believe in any hoax that they see just because they saw it on the internet. And you could use all of that technology or all of that knowledge to learn things, to better yourself, and yet, you know, we use it to just dick around on our phone all the time. <laughs> Feed our so, worst impulses. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I actually have some some
0: thoughts about that when we get to contact as well, courtesy of McConaughey's character, but... Uh, oh, all right, yeah. all right, all right, all right. <laughs> but we're still on the, on the library here. Um But another... Kind of specific thing that I think we're definitely going to talk about in context of our, our two pieces of discussion today are kind of the religious maybe parallels or kind of the religious allegory in this story. And the first thing I noted about that was kind of the library is the sacred and the man is most definitely the, the profane in this because the narrator has uh, a passage in the story that says it's a slightly lengthy so. Bear with me here. Uh, man, the imperfect librarian, may be the work of chance or of malevolent demiurges. The universe, with its elegant endowment of shelves, of enigmatic volumes, of indefatigable ladders for the voyager, and of privies for the seated librarian, can only be the work of a god. In order to perceive the distance which exists between the divine and the human, it is enough to compare the rude, tremulous symbols which my fallible hand scribbles on the end pages of a book with the organic letters inside, exact delicate, intensely black, inimitably symmetric. So, yeah, that's very flowery, very, uh, (laughs) very much drawing the line between a perfect being and this uh, not really dirty, but imperfect (laughs) imitation, I suppose you could say.
1: Yeah, I had not made the sacred profane connection there, but that's a good, good point.
0: And then kind of just the library is and its whole existence is almost a cult unto itself, which, of course, inspires other factions as well. So you can kind of read this story if you want as a tale of religious mysticism or of putting mm-hmm. your faith in like entirely in something, let's say science or technology or anything that you yep. want to make your God, whether it's like actual religion as we know it, uh, that like dovetails so perfectly with what we're going to talk about with contact, I think. And then, yeah, factions breaking out, people with their own beliefs about what the purpose and meaning of the library is. Uh, the narrator talks about, he says, a wild region uh, where the librarians say it's, like, vain to seek out any sense in the books and say it's, like, looking for meaning in your dreams or in the lines of your hands. And say that, like, the this this faction says the writers of the books put stuff in there. But it was all like anything that makes sense is just accidental and the books actually mean nothing. Uh, So like you have these librarians forming their own ideologies on the library and there's infighting with at one point, apparently some some people decide to just like throw a bunch of books away down into the infinity of the library because they, they give up on like finding like the tale of their own lives, which people eventually theorize is there. And they're all rushing up trying to find this and people are stepping over each other and murdering each other, trying to find this and throwing books and each other off of the rails. And so, you know, that's just kind of what r- religions have done as well for a long time. Uh, in one specific context, like take the crusades among many other examples. So it felt pretty, pretty real. <laughs> this library. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but for me the the best summation of all this was i think near the near the end of the story the narrator's talking about the theory that some people in the library have of the total book that it's this volume that supposedly contains it's like the the catalog of everything kind of like the the theory of everything kind of book uh yeah yeah And this narrator is trying not to despair that like no one's ever going to find it. But he just hopes saying that he hopes that even one person has read this. He says, quote, if honor and wisdom and happiness are not for me, let them be for others. May heaven exist. Though my place be in hell. Let me be outraged and annihilated. But may thy enormous library be justified for one instant in one being. And if that's not a perfect expression of the hope of pretty much every religion ever, Mm -hmm. I don't know what is Uh, and he also like calls the book being analogous to a guide so it's like library as a whole supposed to be like God the father and the total book is God the son and I don't know who the Holy Spirit's going to be in this but you know know, (laughs) Christian readings of this is because that's what we brought up and at least so that's what's in my head but uh it's just if you look for it there I feel like it's it's absolutely dripping with all this uh I don't even know if you call it subtext. It's pretty much text here of of the religious and fighting and philosophizing and
1: and things. Yeah, when I first saw that part too, I was like, oh, so it's like the the Bible. They're looking for like a a Bible that can explain everything. Just the, uh, because he does compare it to God and it can explain everything and it can do everything. So it could be God, could be Jesus, could be a being that solves all your problems or you can put all your faith in it. Whatever, but the first thing I thought of was I was like that freaking basic instructions before leaving Earth <laughs> acronym for the Bible, where it's like everything you can ever think of is here in this book, and it's like well it it gets at deeper truths about humanity, but I don't know about everything. But you know we want to make that book hold everything for us and like be a totem for the entirety of the universe. And so uh, that struck me as, oh, this guy's just looking for, like, the ultimate Bible that can explain everything in the world, regardless of what religion it is, where it comes from. So yeah, I wonder what uh, Boras's religious leanings were. that would be an interesting thing to find out. That's a good question. I feel like I looked that up perusing his
0: Wikipedia page, but I honestly can't say one way or the other right now. So maybe we'll check in on that. Next time, but it's a good question. I have to say, it sure sounds like he's pretty agnostic to me, uh, but
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: or at least questioning about a lot of it. Though. Oh, absolutely, no, yeah. no question about his questioning uh, at the very least. So, um, other things don't have too much more uh, after all that, but yeah, again, just kind of uh, touched on like in terms of. Nolan-esque topics that we've discussed before, a subjective belief in an objective reality. So the librarian searching for truth, believing possibly in that one book or a collection of books in this vast library holds the key to unlock everything, but having the different ideas on it. Uh, And also just the fact of we are being told the story through the lens of one single narrator, one single librarian in this whole library. And so that's our window in here. And so that's going to inform our views as a reader on what this hypothetical library is actually like so just uh
1: subjective belief is infused into our experience of the story uh and that even goes as far as there's footnotes to the story and one of them is i think uh, a footnote from the person that actually edited the the ficciona's collection but then a lot of them are with its footnotes that are textual to the story yeah inside of it And so once I realized, I was like, oh, he's like, this is the story itself is a document in this library that's being used to explain everything else. So really what who is writing it? What's going on here? Right, right. And added meta layer of it that I thought was pretty cool.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, it was just another one of those Borges short stories where it feels the, the footnotes part of it is what makes it feel like it. Oh, could this be a real thing? Hold on a second. Um, because there's another story I, I've read in Fictionis that we haven't discussed here and I forgot exactly the title because it's a collection of sort of odd words but it's basically about it's sort of almost uh, Illuminati-ish and this like secret cult has put this encyclopedia out in the world that is just a bunch of nonsense and it's discussing the, the whole conspiracy of these people to put it out there and just add on to it and the secret pact that they took to keep putting it out there and make people think it's real. And it's just written so well. I'm like, wait, is this really like, where does Where can I find this encyclopedia? But you have to keep reminding yourself that this is a work of fiction, what you're actually reading itself. And he just does it so well. It makes things feel like it makes the implausible feel easily possible. And it's such an incredible style. Um, you know, I uh, was reading this in English, though, I mean, I, I'm still pretty sure we can put it most of it down to Borges, but I think sometimes your mileage may vary a little bit on the translation, but Right. Yeah. But just the, the topic and the subject matter. So far in what I've read, he just always nails it like that. And it's such an incredibly distinctive quality to his writing that I've noticed so far and in, in what I have taken in from him. And then the very last thing, just a little stray note before we head over to contact would be uh, I loved the phrase the the sentence in the story where the narrator says the library exists ab eterno, which is the Latin phrase for from eternity has existed from the beginning of time, has always existed. But That phrase struck uh, quite the chord with me because it's the name of an episode of Lost in the final season and deals with Richard Alpert's story, a character who seemingly doesn't age at all. So uh just uh tickled my my lost fancy quite a bit. So all right, lost. And considering we're going science v faith in our contact discussion, I think it's gonna be <laughs> you know, I, I'm getting all my lost vibes in here and I'm really loving it. So so thank you, Borges, for sticking that phrase in there.
1: <laughs> I need to just rewatch Lost.
0: Yeah I'm I, talking I, about I, it a lot lately.
1: <laughs> absolutely.
0: I I think everybody should, (laughs) but we can move on to contact now and I'll let you introduce this one. Jake, I know you love it a lot and I thoroughly enjoyed this too. And we'll talk about that.
1: Take us where I do. Yes. Uh, So some uh, brief technical things about this. This was released in 1997, uh, directed by Robert Zemeckis. He of back to the future and uh, Forrest Gump, who framed Roger Rabbit fame. Uh, starring jodie foster matthew mcconaughey and tom scarrett but there's a lot of other peak 90s people in this movie so many uh yeah uh in color filmed in 35 millimeter 150 minutes long and a brief synopsis from imdb dr ellie Arroway, after years of searching finds conclusive radio proof of extraterrestrial intelligence sending plans for a mysterious machine uh, and that is the plot, the bare bones. But the actual, uh, the whole movie also involves McConaughey's character, uh, Palmer Joss. Is a uh, he's a man of the cloth without the cloth, as there, he says. Yep, he, there you uh, go. he couldn't do the celibacy thing. He likes to have sex too much. Uh, so <laughs> can you he, <laughs> can you blame him? <laughs> I, this is this rewatch. I was like, one that is a perfect McConaughey character name. Oh yeah, and two, just I. Especially after listening to his uh, audio, his memoir on audiobook, which I think is the definitive way to experience that piece of media because he narrates it. Just, I was like, that's a, he could have said that as a 30 year old, like when he is younger, like that's just his philosophy, I feel like. (laughs) So great casting choice uh, from them on that movie. But he gets involved with Ellie Arroway, who is played by Jodie Foster a little bit early on in the movie while she is doing research to try and find evidence of extraterrestrial life. And they have a conversation, you know, a lot of conversations about faith and religion and science and is there life out there. But, uh, Ellie whole fascination with searching for that is, uh, she grew up without a mom. Her mom died in childbirth. Uh, and her father was a, a radio operator uh, and a scientist and taught her how to, operate ham radios and operate other signals like that as a kid and that was their big bonding thing that you get to see in an early flashback sequence and so that was just the thing that she liked to do and then one day while she one night while a shooting star comes out and they're watching she's out there watching it Uh, she's trying to get her dad to come outside and then he ends up dying and so that's a traumatic experience for her. So her whole career has been searching for something proof that there's something out there. First, it was trying to find something with her mom at the, in the earlier scene, she asked her dad, can we, we can contact down to Florida with this radio. Can we use a signal to find out where mom is? And uh, he says, no, I don't think there's any radio signal that is powerful enough for that. Um Ooh. And yeah, just and he's David Morris plays her dad, and he yeah. normally plays like tough guy, like a uh, cop, gruff people. But he's he's so tender and loving here, just in the brief amount of screen time that he gets. Yeah, uh, man, just the, and that final scene just wrecks me every time. Oh, yeah. uh, but we can yeah. get more to that. So she's trying to, she's looking for something. She's a very analytical, logical scientist person. There is always an explanation for something. There's always got to be a scientific, scientific. there's always going to be a scientific reason for something. And yet she devotes her whole life to maybe if the the driving notion that she doesn't even want to admit is that maybe I can contact my family again. Maybe I can understand something about why they left. Um, there's a scene early on, especially after her, her dad dies where, uh, the priest at the funeral just basically hits her with a, uh, you know, we don't understand why God does these things, but you just gotta accept it and move on with your life. And Everything she happens for a reason. It. Yeah. Yeah. The, I hate that, but, uh, we can not the time to play there that. Group. Not for this one though. No. no, no. And so she refuses to accept that and she devotes her whole life to finding out. If there is extraterrestrial life, or if there's any other way to explain stuff like that, so we loop back to the future and back to the future. Um, hey, I see what you did there. There's also a back to the future reference in the beginning, uh, with the there's a brief snippet of the power of love song from Huey Lewis in the news at the oh, beginning. That no, I, I guess, was pretty they, interesting. okay, while they're doing the pull out yeah. in the universe, yeah. Yeah, the first shot is it just hits you with a wall of sound of snippets of whatever radio signals have been beamed up. And then it just pulls out to Mm -hmm. the globe, to the planets, to the Milky Way, to the cosmos. And it's a really, really cool special effects shot that I really, really love. That was probably like the most expensive shot in this entire movie. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But uh, anyway, to summarize further... um, Ellie ends up finding and receiving a signal uh, that proves that there is other life out there. And so once she publicizes that, uh, that kind of sends the rest of the world into a tailspin and everyone is questioning, what does this mean about religion? What does this mean about politics? What does this mean about everything that we know about the military and how do we defend ourselves? And uh, there's a lot of talk about funding in this movie, (laughs) whether for scientific scientific explanation or experiments and ship building and military funding and everything like that national security. Yeah. And so there basically is, um, like an arms race to see who can figure out who can build the ship instructions that the, the aliens beam back to us the quickest and the logic is, well, the Americans paid for most of the research to find the signal, We're going to build it. We're going to send our astronauts and people up there to figure it out. And so Ellie is in the running to go up in the spaceship, despite the fact that she is not an astronaut. She was one of the people that discovered the signal. So she's in the running for it. And she gets kicked out of consideration because Palmer Joss is on the board to evaluate people to go up and he hits her with a, do you believe in God question at the press conference? And she answers. You. She answers logically. She answers the way that the only way that she knows how. She says no, and he was like, "Well, I don't know if we think we should, uh, you know, have the first contact be someone who doesn't believe in God." So she gets kicked off, and there's all, there's a constant push and pull between Jody Foster and Matthew McConaughey here about science, faith, belief, and trust, and everything like that. Uh, and then it finally results in Ellie ends up getting to go in a second machine that was built in secret uh, to go see and see if she can make contact with these people. And the ending to this is really, really beautiful. And we can get to the the similarities between some of the other Nolan stuff here in a little bit. But yeah. basically she gets beamed up. And then she is dropped onto a beach, which looks very similar to a drawing of a beach that she made of Florida when she was a kid. And the alien takes the form of her dead father. So it's David Morris walking towards her. And at first she's like, Oh my God, I did it. I found him. I figured out how to make contact with my dad. And then, you know, you can, you can see the, the wheels turning in her mind. And then she's like, Oh no, no. Like, Occam's razor they're not wanting to they don't want to scare me they're just gonna take the form of whatever I think I know which that's why I'm on this beach in Florida and then the alien even says that like yeah this you know we're not showing our true face to you this isn't what it normally looks like we just figured based on what you have remembered and what you know this is the easiest way to make contact with you and so you don't really know the movie frames it as us as the viewer, not really knowing, like, well, did she actually meet uh, aliens or is she dreaming this? Is this what she wants to believe? And she has a really heartfelt moment with uh, the guy that looks like her dad, who basically says, in all our searching, the only thing we found that makes the emptiness bearable is each other. Uh, So even if it isn't an alien, you know, take care of the people back on Earth take care of what you know and so she has this huge profound experience blacks out and then wakes up and then realizes that what actually happened back on earth was the ship fell out of its dock and uh she was only out for like a little bit but then she said no the the log said i was gone for like 18 hours but then the the people doing the hearing for what actually happened were like well uh, this is confidential and we can't tell anyone else, but yeah, there all that we recorded on urine was static, but there was 18 hours of static. And so the ending is treated as the first step of what we can do to find extraterrestrial life. But we also have to like Ellie try and take it on faith, which is the ironic twist for her that what she saw was real. And she has to have faith that that actually happened in order to continue her scientific research. So very uh big mix of all the themes there for that but that's a pretty big broad swath of what happens uh but we can get more into the details here in a little bit but yeah i uh i love this movie <laughs> yeah i this was the first time i
0: watched it since i the only other time i saw it was as a child i was i saw this movie in the theater yes i saw this in the theater i was six years old and my mom took me say, to the base you, theater. And what did you
1: think of it at six years old?
0: I, a large part of it, I kind of had no idea what was going on. I did under, I do remember understanding that she was going to try to contact the aliens and go in the ship. And I mean, but it was a bit too much for me, uh, like kind of going over my head. A lot of it, honestly, like there was just something about this movie that scared me or just on some deep level just shook me to my core. So I think that's partially, yeah, just being a kid and not quite understanding what's going on. Uh, I actually watched this this time around with my mom again. Uh, she was visiting and uh, we watched it together and we we talked about the first time I went to see it in the theater and she said, maybe, maybe, uh, why did I do that? And I said, well, you know, it was rated PG and uh, my dad was stationed in Korea at the time and we were still back in Texas. And so <laughs> she said, yeah, I guess I uh, brought yeah. you with me and I was like, yeah, I mean, it wasn't awful, but I just remember, yeah, it was scary. And so what, it was just the, and what, this is what space movies have kind of been for me always, as fascinated with them as much as I love them, that there's still that, in the Nolan Variations, there was a passage that kind of struck me as well about Jonah Nolan talking about studying theoretical physics at Caltech under Kip Thorne, and t- like learning about relativity and noticing that the common theme to all the examples of relativity involves people saying goodbye and departing and talking about how there was always an inherent sadness to that and so I noticed like maybe that is the thing like just the vast unknowable infinity of the universe number one is what terrifies me but I feel like I always feel that inherent sadness when watching a movie like Interstellar or Contact and someone's leaving and going into that great unknown and it's just you know, overawing and a bit, yeah, at least a little bit scary. And so being confronted with that feeling as a six-year-old, oh man. So mainly what my memories were just before watching this was, I just remember the spinny orb thing. But then once I rewatched it, uh, there is a, so you mentioned the second machine that Ellie got to go in. Well, the first one got blown up by a religious suicide terrorist and, Uh, That's how the initially chosen astronaut dies. So like once I saw that happen again, that is a memory that I had apparently deeply repressed. But the vividness of seeing that, (laughs) the sun came rushing back and that has got to be 100% the thing that fucked me up from this movie. Um, And I think also this movie is still the reason like whenever I hear people talking about the star Vega, because that's where the signal uh, comes from, kind of scares me or why. Mm, I have a little bit of distrust of that star. (laughs) But most of all, I had completely forgotten about all the science religion stuff in this movie. But looking back on it, I think that might be the beginning, the primary source of maybe my eventual existential crisis I had in my mid-20s and the eventual shift to what I probably have to admit is my agnosticism now. But Carl Sagan, definitely my homie. Uh, So uh, I, I came through that crisis and I think I'm doing all right but that's that was my first experience of contact but this this time around much better since i much more prepared much more well versed in in knowledge and discussions of things and topics and stuff so that's, that's where i was with this movie coming into
1: it yeah <laughs> yeah i uh, i can't imagine watching that at six years old and having to figure out that because that probably wouldn't I would have a vastly different relationship with this movie. That'd probably yes. mess me up. Too, In the movie theater like, too. So you can imagine the
0: full force of the the visuals and the and the sound. Everything. Uh,
1: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially the like the the signal noise is like just a chug, chugga chug, chugga like Yes. Almost like a train that like is not stopping. I thought that was the yeah. Yeah, the sound design on that signal has I love that so much is so well done
0: and and that's another actual creepy thing that I think I found when I was younger I mean it's still kind of eerie to hear it today but uh, again as a kid that was another pretty scary part relatively scary
1: (laughs) yeah I uh the first time I watched this I think had to have been I was living in Victoria and I don't know so I was like 23 24 I don't know why I decided to watch it. I think maybe I had seen interstellar and I think maybe I hadn't heard a lot of people talking about similarities with that movie and contact. Uh, I didn't see that. If I just figured something out. I don't know, but I, I ended up finding the DVD at like a Hastings is what they had down there. Oh, Hastings. Uh, that's what I had yeah. growing up. That's my, yeah. that's my story. Yeah. Yeah. R.I.P. Um uh, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, And I watched that and just remember being absolutely blown away by how much it predicted about how we would probably react to everything. Um, And also just the, the, the realistic aspects of all of it. Like Zemeckis deep faked a Clinton press conference for this movie. Like there are real CNN anchors. It is a real Clinton press conference. Uh, they had real celebrities on this and he just used the same technology that he used in Forrest Gump to be like, "Yeah, we can make exactly. this work. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so there's that going for it and all the sound design and all of the really big discussions of, you know, of course it first goes to money. Of course it first goes to who's going to build this thing uh, if we're not all going to cooperate. And I was also reminded a lot of uh, like Arrival reminds me a lot of this movie Arrival came out after I saw this the first time just basically with that movie's message of like, we need to learn to talk to each other or we will kill each other. Communication is the most important thing, but also in outer space because the aliens are good and they want to help us. Um <laughs> and, But I, so I saw that and then I was just like, wow, this is really amazing. This might be one of my favorite movies about space now. And then I ended up writing about it a couple of years later for the newsletter series that I did for my 30th birthday. So that was, I did the, uh, wrote about 30 movies, uh, one for each year. And, uh, that was the 1997 entry. And I just, I don't know, it solidifies a lot of things that I have th- like inherently thought, but hadn't really expressed a lot. Like I am a religious person. I believe in God and I also believe in science. I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive, I side with uh, it was Carl Sagan who said it, but in the movie it's uh, David Morse who takes that quote, the, if it really is just us, it's an awful waste of space. Yeah. Like if, if you believe in God and then believe that God is all powerful, God can do whatever God wants to do. I kind of think it's the height of human arrogance to think that we are the pinnacle. Like we're great. I think humanity is fine. Like we're (laughs) humans are, amazing and incredible and empathetic and great and we we also have the potential to be incredibly terrible and bad and uh just horrific to one another but we also have a lot of potential for goodness and joy and love but i also think that if we think that we're like the best god can do i kind of feel like that's selling god short a little bit (laughs) like in our present state i don't know maybe that's sacrilegious but I think that if you think that he could make whatever he wants to make, who am I to say that there's not other planets with other life forms out there that we don't know about? We have no concept of knowing about just because it's they're so far away or the technology is so advanced or whatever. Um, yeah. And so something like this really kind of scratches that itch of thinking about like, well, what would happen if we figured that out? And like, is it so bad to think that if that existed like what would happen and like the the romantic part of me wants to think like sure maybe there's like whole other pieces of the universe out there that we have no clue about and that's kind of cool because the the universe is vast and again like that thing i was talking about earlier like there's no way of knowing it but that's kind of cool because there's so much out there but then on the other hand as most of the people in this movie think like, what if they are out there and they're out to kill us all. And that's why we need to up the national defense budget and <laughs> start short yeah. resources against <laughs> all of the evil aliens and stuff. So, yeah, but I, I, the, the bit in the movie about like church attendance skyrockets because of this, because people are starting to come to grips with, you know, maybe they need to get right with God or maybe they need to go to church more. Uh, people are also saying that the discovery of this is anti-God and proof that you know their people are trying to test your f- faith and uh, attack God. Uh, Rob Lowe's the uh, avatar for that. He oh been, man, a bit, yeah, a bit, his tired, little, yeah, has a little foghorn leghorn.
0: Like the perfect encapsulation to what the conservative response really
1: would be. It's just, uncanny. yeah, as yeah, I don't. know. Like, I don't know if that would, if it would even be that tame now. I feel like now everyone would be like, well, we got to get our nukes ready to fire at any moment and we would probably kill each other just because of how paranoid everyone is now about it. But, yeah. um, yeah, just a, I, I felt like it was a really realistic look at what might actually happen. But I do, I don't know. I, I think old, old McConaughey is, um, he's interesting because I don't know his whole thing is, you know, technology should honor the people that created it. Right. Yeah. So his comment about, we should have someone who believes in God be one of the people to make first contact. I mean, that totally vibes with him that vibes with his ethos and everything, but I don't know. He's a, it's an interesting character because he's also kind of just like a, well why didn't you call me back i'm mad at you person. <laughs> you know <laughs> like yeah. i feel like he lobbed that question at her just because like you didn't call me back after we had sex what's wrong with you like
0: <laughs> yeah yeah she very deliberately ditches his number uh before in the early on in the movie uh but we're you're touched on so many things that i like yeah that i'm excited to talk about i just think we need to back up to say first Why did we choose a movie with Interstellar? Because there is a laundry list of parallels here before we jump back into all the other things. Um, So much. But I think it's kind of... I'm talking about breaking the rules in this episode on Letterboxd uh, Demi. I'm not going to butcher his last name because I have so much respect for that guy. Um, But he's like one of the most prolific, most upvoted reviewers on there. Uh, He did the series of September videos. another thing he's well known for over the years. Uh, So... Anyway, Demi's review of this movie is uh, kind of sums it all up. Quote, beautiful speculative science fiction with a focus on reality, secret duplicate machines, weirdly pro capitalist, love transcending the boundaries of interdimensional travel. Matthew McConaughey, it's too long and it's got a dead wife. Christopher Nolan watched this movie every night before he put his kids to bed. Oh, that's, man. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's pretty much it's got.
1: Let's we'll talk about the was actually Capet- the. That was actually the link that I chose for my review later. But yeah. Oh, I've ruined everything. Uh, oh, no, it's fine. It's yeah. I mean, because that's that's true. It It is. I thought that was yeah, that was pretty fun. I can find a new one uh, before we end if we want. But oh, there's so many no, good reviews of this too. movie on Letterboxd,
0: too. But oh, you've yeah, got that you've got a father daughter relationship. Faith love is an unexplainable force that science can not account for. You've got a smug or a lying like science administrator who turns out his female mm-hmm. employee is way smarter than he is. Uh, In both of these movies, you've got explosions and spacecraft blowing up or bases blowing up. You've got like the second machine in contact. You've got secret NASA operations and interstellar, both a result of government secrecy or going under the table. Again, Dead Wife, Anthony McConaughey. William Fickner is in contact, which he's not in interstellar, but he's also in a Nolan movie. So I'm counting that. Um, (laughs) 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 Got time, relativity, the notion of humans have to just get together to save ourselves is what the, the aliens tell Ellie in contact yeah. and what Cooper eventually comes to understand in interstellar. Um, Ellie dropping through the rings of the, the alien machine that they build is kind of like Cooper dropping himself into the black hole. Uh, man. And then mm-hmm. like, I think the, and finally like the core, the core reason, or at least the, one of the reasons I was wholeheartedly on board with choosing this movie was that uh, on Contact is where Linda Obst and Kip Thorne, well, did they meet up? No, they didn't meet up on the movie, but they came to work on that movie because they were both uh, friends of Carl Sagan, and then those two people conceived the idea for Interstellar in the mid two thousands of what eventually became that. And so, wormholes and the idea of that are both in both movies, and the concept as they're depicted in both movies is kind of based on Kip Thorne's work. And so. Yeah, like everything's here that like I said earlier, the DNA is just uh, these these movies are easily cousins, if not anything closer. So that's why yeah, that's why we're here. I,
1: I can't imagine that Nolan had never seen it before doing oh. Interstellar. Like there's there's no way. Um, yeah. The only other the you hit on almost all of them that I was thinking of. But the other ones were um a very identifiable sound. So you've got the signal that comes oh, back yeah, yeah. and then you've got, you know, the, the inception noises and the, the dark night score and everything. So you've got a very identifiable noise to associate with it. And I also, this watch also really unlocked the ending for me. What is her meeting with the David Morris, not David Morris, if not Killian Murphy and Pete possibly in inception where he gets his moment of catharsis while knowing that it probably isn't real. Oh no, kidding! But wow, he, yeah, but he takes it anyway and takes it on faith, and that's the arc of that character. And is they they have that closure with that character
0: have yeah, a closure, and then it comes to de- I would assume based on what we see at the end of Contact, it comes to, to define both of those characters too. With Robert Fisher, yeah, the inception apparently worked, and then uh, at the end of Contact, Ellie is. You know, like really even more committed and uh, she's shown teaching a group of school children talking about the universe and, you know, of course, mentioning the line again about uh, maybe we're alone. But if if we are, it seems like an awful waste of space. So kind of just affirming those ideals and having that peace and being able to move forward with their path. Definitely. That's a great, great connection. I love that. Mm -hmm. But uh, maybe we can start at the ending because uh, I think I think that was near the end was probably my favorite line in the whole movie that tied everything together. We've been talking so much about the science and faith of it all. Uh, I don't know if this is getting ahead of ourselves or starting at the end and we'll work our way back. But I think
1: in true Nolan fashion, I think we should. (laughs) Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. The thing that tied it all together so perfectly for me uh, of the meaning and, and purpose and humans, humankind, search for that. McConaughey's character is uh, getting into a car with Ellie after her hearing, where she tells the the panel, like, "Yeah, I don't, I believe this experience is real, but there's no way I can prove it to you. You have to take it on faith." And so there's just all the crowds outside, and Palmer's with Ellie and he's a he's a spiritual advisor to the president in this movie like a Malcolm Gladwell type guy <laughs> sort of he wrote a book got famous yeah. and so people are asking him press is asking what do you think what do you think is he's a well-known spiritual guru and he says as a person of faith I'm bound by a different covenant the Dr. Arroway but our goal is one and the same the pursuit of truth I for one believe her, and just whoa, oh, just the chills of when he says that and like, you know, mm. like in the end, that's, that's what both, you know, science and faith are really after like answers, truth. What are we really doing here? Same goal, different method. And I think the, the biggest point off of that, that I took from this, I think they both kind of ag- agreed, maybe not agreed. I think they both came to a sort of detente Where it was, it's okay to admit what we don't know. Um, The movie threads the needle so well with the why can't science and faith coexist? You know, it's asking that question. And from my perspective, most especially, why can't some faiths or some faith traditions at least accommodate scientific discoveries? Why can't there be room for that? Because in my experience, there's, and, and what I've observed, there's not, some people just absolutely cannot make room for that. But it's okay to admit what we don't know. Uh, and I think the movie really uh, tries to make a point about that. And of course, that ties uh, like extremely strongly into Interstellar with uh, Murph's line from early on in that movie, quoting it right at, at Cooper. And there's you say science is about admitting what we don't know. Uh, so, yeah, like, why can't? Why can't we just get along? You know, as I said, yeah.
1: here. Like it, yeah. it's, that's the scientific method is we don't know what we don't know. Let's do a test and then we will know more of what doesn't work in order to get to what does, you know? So,
0: yeah. 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 And again, like I said, the first time I watched this as a child, I, all the, all of that discussion just completely went over my head. So seeing it now with, with where I am with things and all my lived experiences, it really hit like all this. Um, I, some people, I think, think it's too on the nose, the, the push and pull between science and religion in the movie. But I think it is really incredible because uh, on one hand, it does like go to great pains to illustrate the difference between blind fanaticism with uh, Jake Busey is the character who ends up blowing up the, the first machine. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. Versus something that gives meaning like, using faith as something that gives meaning and purpose to your life and trying to utilize that in a way that accommodates, like welcomes people and has some warmth to it, which of course is, uh, McConaughey's character. So because we're going into this, the, we talked about the, what the sympathies of a film are before with the battle of Algiers and with, with this movie, given it's a written by Carl Sagan and Andrew again, uh it's very obviously that the the sympathies of the film are with science and the, the skepticism and the observability and the scientific method, but the beautiful thing it does, it's not something that says, Hey, you, you believe in God, you're stupid. You're an idiot. It, it has that discussion. It's a, it's a wonderful discussion. Uh, and it's nuanced and it gives room for both characters to, you know, just trade. Like you said, there's that push and pull and have that back and forth. Um, (laughs) like, um, one of my favorite little needles that Palmer gives to, to Ellie is uh, during her he- confirmation hearings. And she says, uh, what I meant to say is that the message from the, the aliens was written in the language of science. Now, if it had been religious in nature, it should have taken the form of a burning bush or a big booming voice from the sky. At which point, uh, McConaughey's character says, but a voice from the sky is exactly what you found, Dr. Arroway. And it's like, oh, great. And then... There's uh, a bomber's counterpoint to Ellie just talking to him about Occam's razor, saying the, you know, given all else being equal, the simplest explanation is the probably the right one in her argument of saying why God probably right. doesn't exist. And then he yeah. comes right back with uh, you know, your father. Did you love him? She said, yeah, of course. And then he just says, prove it. And it's just, oh, mm-hmm. man, wow. Like, yeah. what, what are you supposed to say to that? Um, nah. So they both have a point and uh, you can see how they can see the world the way they do and what they believe. And the film just it doesn't insult someone for having their viewpoints, you know, within a reason. Obviously, it doesn't make a, any kind of hero out of Jake Busey's religious terrorist, obviously. But it finds space for that. And there's just that kind of nuance and accommodation think uh in like real life discussions is severely lacking and that empathy for hearing what someone else has to say even though you don't believe the exact same things is you know maybe it's just seeing what i want to see but i feel like you don't see it as much today and it's something that uh, i struggle with too trying to accommodate other opinions and and beliefs sometimes that i disagree with or have trouble uh, seeing the viewpoint of so i think that's just an incredible message and an incredible thing that this movie does.
1: Yeah, I think it's telling that some of the most heated arguments are not really with Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey, but it's Jodie Foster and Tom Skerritt. It's always about funding or it's about basically not being respected in the workplace because she's a woman and Tom Skerritt wants to take all the credit for it. So I think, yeah, the the sympathies are much that de- are definitely lying with the scientists and the struggles of just getting your research heard and getting your ideas heard. Um, Right. Yeah. Yeah. But on that note, this also is very much uh, another Nolan, semi-Nolan connection. This is. Uh, I like this movie because it it has some of my favorite movie subgenres. You got your faith the heady discussions of religion and then sci-fi stuff, but it's also about extremely competent people who are very good at their jobs, uh, which is a subgenre movie. I love like oceans broadcast news, stuff like that. Michael Mann um, films, Michael, Michael. Yes. <laughs> Mike and Michael Mann films because Jodie Foster really does that well. in pretty much every movie she's in like this one, uh, inside man, uh, and silence of the lambs, which, you know, has the Hannibal Lecter, michael man manhunter connection there too yeah but yeah like i can't imagine I, I don't know how he never mentioned this in this book because it's it's heady concepts about science and faith and religion and like the first you know 40 minutes of this thing is explaining like what seti is and radio frequencies and math is the only universal language and right uh, <laughs> and all this other stuff it like, does
0: get does get pretty technical to, to get you on base to figure out what's going on yeah. Yeah. Which is yeah, Nolan Hallmark and honestly, yeah. <laughs> Too yeah. much explanation. Yeah.
1: yeah. And I love I love the little detail about how the the signal that they beam back is Hitler at the Olympics because that was the first thing that had enough juice to get broadcast to the world. Mm-hmm. Which is a huge thing. Like I and I'm imagining if that happened today and that got beamed back, like the absolute alt right chaos that would just happen. Oh my god. Yeah. Like when really like the logical explanation that I really love from Sagan is like, well, obviously like the aliens don't have emotion. Like they're just seeing that that was the thing that was put out. That of course, that's what they're going to beam back as a message.
0: Well, I have no context for who they, that guy is. He's no just context. A, yeah. They don't a know what ceremony.
1: Yeah. yeah. They have no idea. Right. Which is exactly what Jodie Foster tries to explain. But then of course everyone's like, Oh God, no, that they, they want to kill us. all. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. James Woods plays the national security guy. Who's the, one of the primary antagonists in yeah. the movie. And he, given uh, given how things turned out with him through these days, uh, kind of playing himself, as it turns out.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, his little look once he finally realizes that it's a swastika and that it's Hitler, he's just like, hmm. Huh. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> great little moment of face acting there. Which sucks because he's he was everywhere in the 90s and he's really great in a lot of oh, stuff. Yeah. Hercules came and out so. the
0: same year with that great voice performance as Hades, man.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, a few years later was he was really good in John Q. A couple of years later, Denzel Washington. A shame, a shame yeah. that Twitter got to his head and he is yeah what he is now. But
0: so we want to talk about the yeah. come back to what Palmer Joss McConaughey's character says about technology so Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: uh, because i had had some some thoughts on that i took a few notes and please do early on you know after he has met ellie for the first time it skips ahead a few years and he's yeah he's become uh, a media personality he's written a book about faith and our you know its relationship or people's relationship with it in the modern world he's kind of not really a screed but very much comes out talking on all the talk shows about Maybe, you know, is technology science taking things too far these days? His his line is, is the world fundamentally a better place because of science and technology? We shop at home. We surf the web at the same time. We feel emptier, lonelier and more cut off from each other than at any other time in human history. And this movie came out in 1997. Man. Yeah. Like when well, you're, you're, you're shopping was, online. You're in quite the minority. Yeah. The
1: internet was what, seven years old? Just like about. Yeah.
0: Old? Yeah. So. Man. So with lines like that, number one, wow, again, the relevance. Um, mm. But in the context of making the argument about science and technology, making us lonelier, uh, it definitely has a point. But for me, I'd say it's more it's about the application of the technology in some of these things, because we have so much amazing technology then and coming into now. But the most technology that we interact with on a daily basis, I'm thinking, you know, our computers and our phones. It's just been mass marketed by companies that ultimately are really only interested in how many of them they can sell to us in perpetuity. So they design these things to keep us locked in, in that feedback loop, never getting full satisfaction, never resolving. It's kind of just like I wrote my notes. It's like a dopamine shepherd tone, if you can imagine that. Right. Um, That's great. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So in turn, that's one thing that kind of isolates us. It cuts us off from other people dims our views of others humanity just viewing the world through a screen and it makes us post messages and advocate for ideas that we might never dare speak out loud and
1: you know in Mm -hmm. in real
0: life or at least that before all this arrived we wouldn't and so those feelings of loneliness start to consume us so that is why community having a community is so important and i think that's that faith is one of the things that can't offer that it's why so many people adhere to it and keep coming back to it so i think mcconaughey's character would agree with that for sure um and if if faith is not what's for you then there's other places you can find that community or connection i just think that nowadays it's harder to find that or at least it requires a little bit more effort to find that because i don't you know, there's another point another line from that character that i like totally agree on uh later on ellie's talking to him. And he says, I'm not against technology, doctor, I'm against the men who deify it at the expense of human truth. So human truth, or if you want to call it just like the general welfare of humanity or looking out for each other, whatever you want to call that. uh, I'm like, I'm totally on board with that. I'm against just turning technology into kind of its own God or its own means to an end in service of what you might call another God money, which brings us back to again, being about the application of technology. And Putting that in with the Nolan context, you can, if you squint, like I did, you can pull some of that out to like Nolan being, he's not, you know, the the fable of like, well, he doesn't want to use digital effects at all. He's like totally anti-technology. He's not quite anti-technology, but his ethos as a filmmaker is not wanting to just use it just because it's there and just use it as a default to just have, you know, shoot the actors in front of a blue screen. Uh, that just you know, if he ever had to do that, he'd we'd see him gone from <laughs> the, the industry in a heartbeat. He would not be on board with that. But he's again yeah, he's against them as like a crutch just to say, sell movie tickets, really. It's about the like the the conscious, mindful application of it to use it where you need it. And the same thing, I guess you could probably say with his what we know of his personal relationship with technology, apparently he's never had a smartphone. so um and some of the things he talks about in the book. so. Uh, th- those were some of the things I drew out right of that just those few lines of science and technology from the movie
1: never had a smartphone God I wish that were me oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh how the turntables oh yes for my, for my parents if you're listening to this how I begged for a cell phone and begged for a Facebook and oh, connectivity yes. and now I'm just like take it all away put me on an island I don't want to listen to anyone's problems put my family with me and I'll just be fine Yes, yes. Oh, and
0: uh one other note on the like community with again saying like I think I think one reason that faith and religion still yeah, the polls saying you know, people's belief in things is declining, but uh quite apart from like maybe the rules or for living or the morality or the structures or the assurances about an afterlife, I think for me I think the biggest thing for people they keep going back is it's the built-in community and the connection that can come with it. And then once I had that thought, lo and behold, I'm reviewing some of Nolan's thoughts on Interstellar to Tom Schoen, and he says, Interstellar comes down very firmly behind the idea of emotional connection between people. So more um more DNA sharing between these movies, which I think is a great transition into what the what the movie says about love. Beyond the that yeah, that truly amazing quote from from the aliens to
1: Ellie. Definitely the, the love is the only thing that can transcend time and space quote from interstellar. Oh, so talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which got like, I don't know what you want from the man. Like that's about as emotional as he can get and, and like put it out there. It is kind of on the nose, but it's, I mean, that's the point of interstellar. That's the point of this movie. Like, Right. Right, know, yeah, like, yeah like the the faith uh, discussion
0: in Contact is like all the talk about love in Interstellar. Another version of well, not really another version, but the the equivalent line in the novel Contact by Carl Sagan that the movie was based on to to the one in the movie about you know the only thing we found that makes the emptiness bearable is each other. Um, I'm actually going to quote a Letterboxd review comments like I'm just. I'm going totally crazy with it all. Um, so user Z Sorrow wrote on Will Menacher's review of Contact. Uh, says, great movie. And said, Sagan's ultimate message slash philosophy amounted to more than agnosticism and much more than a technocratic humanism. It was a spiritual interdependence. Uh, a quote from the book is She had studied the universe all her life, but had overlooked its clearest message. For small creatures such as we, the vastness is only bearable through love so you know i haven't i haven't read the novel but if i haven't read that quote just another blew the doors off moment just how incredible is that
1: yeah i, yeah. I have the novel and i haven't read it yet but i definitely want to now especially um yeah have you seen uh ad astra at all with brad pitt i have not so that's another I don't want to give away too much about the, the ending to that. Cause I think it's really good, but that is another space exploration movie that kind of comes around to the same conclusion of really each other is all we've got. And at the end of the day, because we can believe in these extraterrestrial beings, these outer worlds and the exploration of outer space. And we can believe in that and, have faith that that might exist all we want, or we can cling to science and reason and logic and what that tells us. But at the end of the day, the thing that we absolutely know for certain is that we have humanity and we have each other and we have this one planet that as far as we know is the center of what we have. And so we need to take care of that and we need to treat each other well, while we're at it. And it takes a a long trip. Like the, he goes to Neptune in that movie, (laughs) like the furthest wow. you could possibly get. Yeah. And it all comes back to that theme, which is just maybe humanity is okay. If we would just talk to each other and understand each other a little bit more.
0: Yeah. Yeah. See, I've got a little bit left here. Um, ah, just uh young, young Ellie after her dad's funeral, trying to talk to him through the radio, just, after you know just shattered me just oh that gutted me being a it, being a girl
1: dad myself now i just god that, i don't even have kids and that was yeah like the yeah especially coming right after the everything happens for a reason scene and her first response was to one blame herself but mm-hmm. two, yeah. to to find a solution that she possibly could have had like no i should have kept the medicine in the downstairs medicine cabinet and that way he wouldn't have been upstairs when he died like Constantly going through the an after action report on what she could have done to save her dad when really just shit happened, she couldn't have done it, you know. Right. Yeah. Also, the have you seen Saved? Oh, yes, I have seen Saved. So, yeah, that's that's the girl from Saved is little young Ellie. Yep,
0: yeah, yeah, Jenna Malone. Um, what else? I recognized her right away and I was thought, yep, pretty sure that's her and. There's another thing she's in that I just can't. Think. Oh, oh no, no, I remember it was. Uh, she's in *Pride and Prejudice* with Keira Knightley. She's um, oh, she's the sister yeah, that runs yeah, off with uh, what's the the evil soldier guy? I forgot his name. I need to. Been mm-hmm. a while yeah. since I watched that. I need to I need to go back to that again. But I think that was another one of the first things I saw her in.
1: Yeah, it was good to see her here. Um, but those, those two scenes, I'll, I'll go back to that just mm-hmm. for a minute, those scenes early on in the beginning with her and her dad, that's the only bit you see of him for the entire movie until the end when the, the alien takes his form and it does such a great job of setting up that relationship in such a short amount of time. Like they have little nicknames for each other. He teaches her, but like, lets her figure out things on her own. Like when she figures out the ham signals coming from Florida um, yeah explains stars to her and everything and clearly like there's a a vast layer of relationship there that it's not showing but it's hinting at and then the when you get that flashback of when he dies it just makes it all the worse of an experience for the viewer but then the the shot where she's running toward the medicine cabinet and it stays all in one take in the frame and it's you don't realize till the end what it's the mirror oh yeah when she opens the cabinet that's i love that shot holy
0: smokes what a shot that was yeah yeah
1: Yeah. the some of the
0: some of the effects in this movie have not aged well unfortunately but that one
1: (laughs) that one holy crap they uh they they nailed that one yeah yeah, that one, the zoom out at the beginning and the every t- I just realized, too, that it mirrors the the two eyes because the first shot, it zooms out, but then it comes out of Jodie Foster's eye or not Jodie Foster, a uh, little Ellie, her eye. And then when she goes into the spaceship and then is out receiving the signal, it everything pops out of the eye as well, too. And so I thought that was a nice little. Oh, nice. Symmetrical yeah, touch. What happened to Zemeckis, man? What went, went, yeah. went to the computers.
0: I went. I went back and looked at his list of the filmographies. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like Back to the Future, Roger Rabbit, All Timers, Forrest Gump, still, still good, even though I, you know, probably not as uh, good as it was, wanted to be when it came out. But it's uh, a, anyway, That's a discussion for another time. Uh, and then, yeah, then this. Uh, so another couple of films he had and then yeah i've never actually seen polar express or Beowulf, but yeah looking at what he had from the 80s and 90s versus his work in the 2000s just there's definitely a uh quite a, a disconnect quite a break oh yeah castaway castaway the castaway wonderful work there but you know, specifically about this movie um going back to just very quickly about like how the movie kind of gets you to admit or see how each side of the debate has a point of, like, how, how great is that? And that's what Zemeckis said he was going for. in this, he was like, I, I want to show that these things aren't incompatible and that there can be a conversation. So, I mean, when, when the director states his intentions so explicitly, and that's what you see on the screen and it delivers, uh, you just got to give him the credit. Well done like this. This was so good. I'm kind of more in the in the scattered bits now of of thoughts on this. But uh, another interstellar link I noted with this in terms of like kind of to faith is the sound of the organ, which we'll probably talk more about when we get to discussion on interstellar. Yeah. But yeah, the the genesis for that idea for Nolan, as I mentioned, like <laughs> in the very first episode when we started talking about things, is that he, in interstellar he wanted to use it because. He wanted to explore, quote, the idea of the organ as one of these tools to inspire religiosity or awe. And Interstellar is quite specifically not a religious film, but you're still looking for what you can tap into, what associations you can use to create a feeling of awe. And the organ felt like that. Uh, And because, as Tom Sean explains, uh, there was daily Chapel at his boarding school of Haleybury, and they had a big old organ there that was pounding out the tunes. So having that inherent uh, intrinsic like deeply built into your core thing of the organ and using that in your movie kind of like linking that to to faith and and religion so it's like hey cool yeah there's there's a little bit of that interstellar if you look obliquely not really explicitly but
1: that's pretty cool yeah i love that score especially the the docking scene with all the organs oh, oh yeah
0: yeah we'll, well we'll have so much time to talk about that it's a very yes. very exciting time uh the last couple things is i wanted to see if uh a- apply the twist makes what you've seen better test uh and in this case i'm talking about Uh, Number one, the reveal that the device that Ellie gets dropped through doesn't really seem to do anything because yeah, from her perspective, she was gone for 18 hours. The footage they show her of what everyone saw on Earth is she just dropped right through the thing and only seemed to like there's just a blip of of like some nanoseconds apparently where she wasn't where the the thing dropped off all their instruments and uh, tracking technology. Uh, And then after the the. She goes in front of the whole public panel investigating the thing. James Woods' character is talking to a presidential communications advisor and played by Angela Bassett, who's great in in her uh, little bit of time as well. And she says, you know, I know everything recorded static, but that's not what I'm interested in. I'm more interested in that uh, it recorded 18 hours of it. And You're like, whoa, hey, like that's the, as you mentioned, that's the point where you realize, okay, well, something did happen here. And the film, again, the film sympathies are with, yeah, this was real, but it confirms that Ellie has been put in that position of this was a real experience. And like, here's the film demonstrating that, yep. Like within the film, that's a true thing that happened. It's, it was real, but putting that irony on Ellie that, well, I have to ask people to take this on faith, despite all the things I've been talking about all movie. And so uh, I would say 100%. Yep, Twist makes what you've seen better here because it, when you go rewatch it, now you know that's what Ellie is building toward, and that no one's going to have had that experience except for her. And then it adds more weight to those discussions you see with with Palmer. It makes the denouement more more poignant. And yeah, like for me, the yeah. the static reveal was like a, a gasp inducing moment. I was like, oh yeah, it did happen. So yeah, she has to learn with the the taking it on faith, and then. Palmer saying she believes her has to reconcile uh, believing that uh, justifiably and magn- magnifies his choice to believe Ellie uh, with what he already believes uh, spiritually from his faith. So
1: I think that it works so well. Yeah. And even if it, it didn't have the, the 18 hours of static line, it's almost kind of like the top and in inception where, mm, yeah, does it matter if it falls or if it stays it matters to the audience doesn't really matter to Cobb because he reached his catharsis and he reached the end of his journey he doesn't matter if the top falls or not he's happy and i think for her like yes it is shown that something happened so she's right but even if that wasn't the way that they went i think she that her arc would still have been completed because she figured out she had that experience and can have peace with it and had that message of humanity and love and hope absolutely yeah great great point love that yeah i wonder if it was made later if people would argue about the ending as much as they argued about the inception ending oh sure yeah but but i don't know because like they don't really make space movies like like ad astra is the closest thing that i can think of to this that really delves into these ideas arrival kind of did and arrival was a pretty big hit uh, and got nominated for a bunch of oscars but i don't know there's not really a whole lot of you know quote unquote movies for adults that are also kind of like this that in their genre movies that indulge questions of religion and faith uh, and everything yeah Um, and kind of on that note i found roger ebert's review of this and he he revisited it in 2011 a little bit before he died and he says watching the film again after 14 years i was startled by how bold it is key roles are played by science advisors to the president who see aliens god and messages from space all in cynical political terms they justify their politics with the catch-all motive of quote national defense When the movie was released in July of 1997, I had more or less the same beliefs I have now about the existence of God and the possibility of life elsewhere in the universe. Yet, reading my review, I find the movie didn't seem as brave to me then as it does now. Perhaps that's because I've since become involved in so much discussion about creationism, another topic that stands at the intersection of science, politics, and faith. Hollywood treats movies like a polite dinner party. Don't bring up religion or politics. And that's all that this movie is is religion, politics, and space. Man,
0: right, man. Uh, Leave it to Ebert to totally put his thumb on it so well. That's great. And I mean, that's for me, that's what was so compelling. So, yeah. And it it does explain why we don't see movies like this anymore because uh, studios simply refuse to cut themselves off from a source of revenue, which is a shame because Which in, there's and so and many this good stories to
1: like this was profitable
0: but it was also 1997, right so yeah. sure <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah before that damn internet just uh, and everything just and that, all that, that online shopping yeah all that, and the, all the streaming
1: <laughs> uh. what if uh, what if now like <laughs> the signal gets beamed up it's like some random like reality show on netflix
0: no oh, i you giving yeah, it's some of the low culture things—the overabundance of it. I, you
1: well, know. if it's that that dating show where everyone's got the the masks on and you can't tell what it is, and then that's what they mean back. <laughs> You're talking about Love Is Blind, is that what, no? I don't There's know. There I that one with the. I do not watch any of these. They wore like animal masks, and you couldn't take them off. You had to guess what the person was like underneath, and it was it was a. Are you talking
0: about the Mask Singer.
1: Old, old. I don't, oh God, that too.
0: Yeah, it's a. I'm yeah. I am very very proud to claim ignorance on all that because it's not uh, that stuff is definitely not for me. Uh, I choose to devote my attention and time to other things. That's what I'll say. <laughs>
1: it's probably wise.
0: Yeah. I guess the last thing I have is just to call out like one of the coolest cameos I think you could ever have in a movie about space. Uh, if you remember the uh, Mission Control dynamics officer, the older guy with the white hair, who was helping make the call on whether to to drop or no drop mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was perusing the credits, or well, watching the credits after the movie was over, and the name came up that said Jerry Griffin, I said no way, that couldn't be but it was uh, Jerry Griffin was one of the flight controllers uh, with NASA during the Apollo years, during the space race, so he was in this movie, uh, as oh, that whoa. character, so a guy who has, yeah, a lot of experience with things like that. He was a director of the shuttle program, I think, in the early 80s. Career NASA guy. If you've read Gene Kranz's book, uh, Failure is Not an Option, you hear about Jerry Griffin all the time. Uh, and he was there, you know, was one of the flight controllers through all of the important, huge historical moments with Apollo 11 and Apollo 13 and all the moon missions. So, uh, so Jerry Griffin, still living, uh, according to his Wikipedia page legend, makes an appearance in contact. So I think it's a very cool moment. I like it when the movies do things like that. That's that's one of the things I really enjoy. Did you have any other questions or comments, Jake, before we head to those letterbox reviews?
1: Uh, Yeah, I have one more thing. Uh, What are your thoughts? Do you think that we are alone in the universe? You believe in aliens. You think there's life out there?
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, you put it that way. I believe in aliens, I guess. Yeah,
1: technically, I guess that's what we call them. Uh, the, the way the way she says, uh, I don't think they're little green men, but I think there's uh, you know something out there.
0: So. <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty much, uh, when she, the, the terms that uh, Jodie Foster's character put it in the movie, uh, as you know, with the billions of stars that are out there and the number of planets, and even of just like one of those, and the millions and billions. And one of those in the billions and billions had you know like life, and this one had intelligent life, and then I just think the universe is so absolutely massive, like just beyond anyone's ability to like fully grasp how big it is because you like you can see the the numbers and the exponentials and everything, but it's just like it's completely I think beyond like our brains to like really grasp like this is how big it is and I just, the odds are so strongly for it. But also the fact that the universe is so big, the odds that we'll never make any kind of contact are also so staggeringly tiny. So yeah, I think even before I watched Contact, uh, again, I was kind of of the general opinion that they put very, very good words to. is If it is just us, it seems like an awful waste of space. So I think, I think there's something out there. yeah. (laughs)
1: yeah I don't uh, like I said earlier, I, I fall on that too. I, I think there's probably gotta be something out there who knows that'd be pretty cool if there was. I hope there is. But yeah, I don't know if we're ever gonna get the technology to figure out what it is, especially with all the the Pentagon reports about UFO objects. <laughs> have, you, have you read any of those where it's just like we don't know what this was, but it was flying over Roswell at some point. And right. I don't know if that's real or if it's the government releasing that in order to throw us off of the scent, right? Because they really do know something. I don't really believe in conspiracy. I don't well, not really. I don't believe in conspiracy theories, but that one I can probably kind of see in, in the f- name of national security to not freak anybody out.
0: Um, yeah, yeah. I in my mind I draw a line between UFOs and people claiming to see things here, and just the simple fact or not. Of other beings having a civilization or just existing or even just sentient life, whether it's uh, something on the order of humans or, or not. Um, yeah, well, intelligent life. Um, still, I, I draw a line between those things. I don't think just uh, <laughs> I'm much more skeptical of UFO reports and things and and all that. But the fact of intelligent life on another planet somewhere sometime Some some place, I yeah I'd say it's much more likely than than not. It's
1: what I think. Yeah. (laughs) Nice. Well, with that, we believe aliens are real, and we get to get to letterbox reviews. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So yeah, I there's so many to choose from. For there's so many uh, well thought out reviews on Letterbox that you could go with for this. But uh, the one I ended up picking was the one that I uh, pulled the comment from earlier. So uh, Will Menneker, who is at Cody Dad 420. What a fantastic uh, handle. 420, love it. Yeah, blaze it. Let's see. It's a, it's a bit lengthy, so I'll pick my spots here. Sure, it's a little corny, but the ending of this movie is moving, beautiful, and takes seriously the big ideas about Faith science, the existence of God and our place in the universe in a way most films are too scared to touch for fear of being square. Mm. And then uh, there's another part where Will writes uh, about McConaughey's character, quote, I love what an absolute bimbo McConaughey's character in this is a complete (laughs) jive artist who is exactly the kind of guy who would become Bill Clinton's personal spiritual advisor. Throughout the movie, he keeps getting invited into these super secret, high-level classified briefings. And he's just this guy who wrote a Malcolm Gladwell-style airport book about how technology (laughs) is taking the place of God and making us sad. And then finally, uh, quote, I also greatly enjoyed when Tom Skerritt gets what's coming to him for taking credit for the work of a woman in STEM. Uh, So Tom Skerritt, again, just as a reminder, plays David Drumlin, who's the the, uh, science administrator who, yeah, kind of... uh, is mansplaining for Ellie all the time and pips the spot on the, the device. And yes, is on the platform when they're doing the test and gets blown up by the religious terrorist. So, so yeah, that's, that's what the the review means when he got what was coming to him. So (laughs) a good review, uh, some good thoughts there. Very good one. Did you find a replacement for the, the one I ruined for you?
1: I did, yeah. Uh, I found uh, two. They're both really quick. They're just one sentence. Uh, This first one is from Matt Snapper. And it says, Zemeckis introduced Matthew McConaughey to space so Nolan could bring him there. Yeah. Further solidifying the connection between the two. And then uh, off of what you just said, uh, this one is by someone named Cole. Uh, The at is CW Bradley. And it says, the wildest thing about this movie is that when the white dude blows up the spaceship, the media calls him a terrorist.
0: Oh, man. <laughs> oh, wow. I hadn't thought about that, but that's so true. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's the biggest fiction in this movie. Yes, it is.
1: <laughs> the headline would be like, spaceship blows up after explosion set by man. Just all the passive voice. Oh, yeah. and yeah. No one
0: uh... <laughs> No one actually did anything. It was uh, just one disturbed individual. Yeah. Oh, man. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Like I said, these reviews, this movie has inspired some some great thought. I think that that is all the evidence that I need for the greatness of this movie. (laughs) the letter it's the letterbox that's that and the that and jake Busey. that's my uh, one true god honestly no that's what i've really been building to. this <laughs> <is> letterbox
1: <laughs> <sighs>
0: yeah well i think we've set the table i think we've done it for a discussion we are very much excited to have on
1: the, the next one yes. yeah very much excited for interstellar my So far, my favorite Nolan movie. Hopefully it'll remain my favorite. I don't think it's going to go down that much, but anyway,
0: can't, you can't have your preexisting notions. You gotta keep an open mind. You gotta
1: test them. Yeah. Science. Yeah. All right. Well, that will wrap it up for us on this one Uh, for your social media plugs. Uh, you can find us at Friends at Dusk Pod on Instagram and Friends at Dusk on Twitter. Uh, you can email us at friendsatduskpod@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at harris 4 or on Letterboxd at 808jake underscore. And you can find Marshall at... Well,
0: on Instagram at marshall.doig, on Twitter at Marshall doig on Letterboxd at mdoig, please like and subscribe Uh, leave us a five-star rating on apple Podcasts or anywhere you can rate us and you can support us through our spotify podcast page too they help us fund our own personal spaceship somewhere and i have one final note we totally forgot to mention john hurt in this movie playing the the industrialist guy who funds everything you know it's just one last note but that's like the maybe one of the weirdest parts of the movie it's a little bit injects a kind of a weird sense of yeah that that what, what Demi said in his review about the weirdly pro-capitalist thing, which makes some things possible. Yeah. But quick shout out for that before the, we go. That secret yeah.
1: spaceship. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> why uh, the first rule of government spending? Why buy one when you could buy two for twice the price? So we got that. That was like the biggest contribution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we did not forget it. <laughs> just under the gun we, we control time and space in the world of our podcast right damn right yeah
1: <laughs> anyway you can uh take a look at all of the resources that we've got uh, and all the things that we talked about here in the show notes uh, we'll link those articles that we talked about at the top of the show and next time we will be discussing interstellar
0: ah yes and until that time however you experience time and space and gravity that will be all for us And we'll see you next time on Friends at Dusk. Thanks for
1: listening. Bye.